Thank you, Katie and Kay listeners, for joining me on Meet in the Middle Show, where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. The hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson, and today's topic is workforce, affordable housing. Will the solution grow on us? Thanks for joining. Uh, my two guests today are Heather Henry and Chris Hassig. I'll introduce in just a moment, um, but I'm grateful that they're here. Uh, Heather, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Heather, what many don't know about Heather is that she was on track to be a professional soccer goalie. Oh. There we go. All right. Heather was on track to be a professional soccer goalie, but instead went on to found and lead not one but two landscape-related companies, Connect One Design and Plantium. She's also a former Carbondale P&Z member and town trustee. Former tr- town trustee. Heather's also been involved in creating many community planning documents and is the co-chair of the West Mountain Regional Housing Coalition. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks, Dan. All right. And Chris, Chris Hassig, uh, thanks for joining us today. Hi. Chris, I stole some information off your website, chrishassig.com, <laughs> and I'd never been on there before, and there's some uh, great information. It provides an insightful window, I suppose I'd say, in Chris's path to community stewardship and leadership. Chris is an artist and a community leader. He currently serves as a Carbondale Town Trustee. And he's also on the KDNK K- board member. Still, I was. Oh, was. Until uh, I guess I guess better update the website. <laughs> okay. Um, the environmental board and the and the and the uh, KDNK board meet at the same time. So. All right. <laughs> um, and according to many people I've talked to around town, uh, they consider Chris quite the uh, thought leader in Carbondale, and I would agree. So thank you both for joining us. Um, first, just a little background. Um, often I'll see the, or hear the goal stated that the affordable housing crisis in the Roaring Fork Valley is an admirable goal, but so far it's one that uh, a solution has escaped me. The problem exists because we live in an area that is incredibly desirable, but as long as our valley is so desirable, housing demand will continue to outstrip supply. Unless, of course, we saturate the market such that housing supply outstrips demand, in which case it's no longer a desirable place to be here. Uh, So it's definitely a conundrum for sure. Uh, And I think most would argue that the affordability and availability of housing is probably one of the more important economic factors in our region. Um, And so the, the most common and easiest solution in the past has been to build or encourage the building of more affordable housing. But how do we square that with the very important goals, including land stewardship, maintaining clear air and water, protecting wildlife habitat, not to mention uh, not overheating the planet? So really, that's what we're here to talk about today. And no matter who you are or what you do, this issue impacts you to some degree. And before we get into questions, just a little bit more context of this conundrum we find ourselves in. On the one hand, we have the 2019 Greater Roaring Fork Regional Housing Study uh, covering Aspen to Parachute to Edwards that reports that Carbondale will need another 700 plus or minus units for people making less than 100% AMI, which we'll explain in a second, by 2027. So 700 more units uh, in the next uh, four years. Uh, and another 5,700 for the, the broader region. 
And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term AMI, it stands for Average Median Income. And in Carbondale in 2022, that the AMI was $94,000 uh, per person, and you can add another $7,500. So really what that report is saying, we need about a, another 700 units for people who are making around $94,000 a year. Um, fast forward to 2023, and the problem is even worse than it was in 2019. It also states that overspending on housing, spending more than that 30% target that uh, is referred to when we talk about affordable housing, cost the region over $54 million a year. And so that says that, uh, that housing was not affordable in 2019. And again, now we know that that problem's even worse. And lastly, that report states that 55% of workers in the region cross paths every workday. So they commute past each other. 40% live where they work. And so to me, how I read that is it's saying that in order for us to overcome those first two problems of availability and affordability, we throw time, money, and energy at it uh, by commuting. So that's, that's the need for affordable housing on one hand. On the other hand, it's my experience that probably two of the more vocal concerns expressed uh, from community members, usually coming from those with stable housing, is that the small town character is diminishing and traffic is growing. And during the local the, the recent uh, comprehensive plan update process, local resident Ross Cribbs opined during the town's, um, one of the town's meetings that the majority of survey respondents believe that Carbondale's growth was too much. So there's definitely that sentiment out there. Other concerns, as I mentioned earlier, include resource, scarce, scarce, resource scarcity, such as fertile land and clean water and the impacts of all types of pollution. And again, not to mention uh, climate change and its impact on all of us. So that's the one hand and, and the other hand, and we're trying to... Um, discuss how do we reconcile the need for affordable housing but the limits to growth. So I thought we'd start off with some really hard questions for Chris and Heather. Again, thanks for joining. Um, Chris, I thought I'd start with you. Uh-oh. <laughs> There's this concept of an urban growth boundary where um, community leaders, elected officials draw a line. Usually it's, it's um, similar to town limits but not necessarily. And they say, okay, we're willing to accept density within that urban growth boundary, and we try and discourage it outside of that urban growth boundary. Uh -huh. um, what do you think about that concept? Is, has, has it worked? Does it not work? Um, yeah, just what do you think about that? Uh, um, I guess I would say it, for, the, for the most part I've been supportive of such an idea um, in the past. Uh, I think I've had some dismay to – you know, growing up here, seeing um, some of the developments between Carbondale and Glenwood and um, really feeling like there is a correlation, specifically when we start talking about traffic, um, those kinds of places can't be served by transit very effectively. And um, so they end up generating a lot of vehicle tra travel. And um, so trying to, and that obviously ties into the whole climate piece, but um, trying to build communities where people can walk from one place to another easily and get to their work and whatnot. I support that idea t entirely. Um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know what, um, what else to add exactly, but I mean, on, on principle, yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's just, um, 
you know, then you get down to individual projects and <laughs> you find things you don't like about it. Uh-huh. And stuff, so, but, um, devil's in the details, huh? Yeah. I mean, always. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, Heather, I'm guessing you're in the same boat, but what are your thoughts on the urban growth boundary concept? Yeah, I, I think it's successful when used um, and when adhered to. So the idea of urban growth boundary is to have the community have a conversation and set that boundary. Um, and oftentimes it doesn't necessarily align with the existing like um, part of the community, right? It, it, it may have areas in it that belong to the county, but it means you've had a conversation to say, well, that particular piece of property might still be appropriate for development, and it's something we'd consider annexing in the future and, and thinking about. And I think, um, you know, as Chris said, it's a really important component to making sure that if growth is going to occur, it's occurring where we agree we want it to be. Um, and, and that's always been a dilemma for me is being really thoughtful when you say no to something like this blanket no to growth mm-hmm. it means you're gonna have consequences somewhere else right because of that desirability you were talking about dan it means there's pressure and to say no just blanketly in in the places where growth might be appropriate you're gonna push it into these other areas you're gonna push it into you know county and things like that and and that's where the idea of regional collaboration comes in, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point as well. Um, but I, I think urban growth boundaries are um, a hugely important tool <laughs> in making sure that growth, uh, if it's going to occur, is occurring where it's appropriate. Thank you. I wanted to start with that because I think that's such an important um, concept, and especially if, if you're not familiar with uh, municipal comprehensive plans it's it's it, all growth might be considered bad and oftentimes it's it's where um, but let's let's open it up a little bit more and say okay we, we're agreeing on the urban growth boundary let's take it a step further and Heather I'll give this one to you tell me what good growth looks like um, uh, and or, or is yeah tell me what good growth looks like <laughs> Oof. Um, I mean, I think that good growth is um, it, it's within the community, so it's within um, walkability or serviceability for alternative transportation, meaning you know, bikeability, walkability, transit-oriented, um, and it means we can service it, so it means we're not extending things tons of road you know all this infrastructure right water sewer roads electric everything else um i think it's now responsible building in my mind um you know so right now we may not be able to put every building up at at net zero but having everything so as the grid transitions all of our buildings can um and this is again talking about new construction when when you kind of talk about growth um so i think also there's an aspect of good growth having a certain pace i think that some of the 
um, response from the community in our recent comprehensive plan in Carbondale, at least. And frankly, we um, so I got to be part of the Carbondale comprehensive plan as a citizen and also as a trustee. But in my day job, you know, I was also part of um, Basalt's master plan, and now we're we're working through some of the um, final aspects of Glenwood's comprehensive plan. And many, uh, much of the feedback from the community has been similar. And it's a reaction, I think, to pace. So there is something about pace in good growth. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of that is because at a certain pace, you can have resiliency. You can have expanded your trails, you know, to, to meet growth. You can um, have the bus service make sure it gets extended, right? And so when things outpace each other... I think that's where there, there becomes this really strong reaction to that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, imagine if your family grows from two to six overnight. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> no one wants to see that kind of, right? It's really hard to be resilient when things um, happen too big and, and too fast. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a thoughtful observation. Um, not only just in general, but that, that seems to be what, in your opinion, uh, most resonates with uh, community members. So that's that's insightful. Chris, how about you? Defining good growth, uh, or is all growth bad? Uh, no, I mean it's it's inevitable because you know nature degrades our living quarters and things, and there is the basic need for shelter to be you know keep the rain out and stuff like that and. that's not going to stay the way it is um, anyway. So you have to assume you're living in a world that is in flux um, constantly. I think it's a fool's errand to think that you live in something that can be, you know, crystallized and kept in a snow globe or something like that. Um, But I really like what, you know, what Heather's talking about with pace here. And I think sort of a corollary to that is also scale and, um, you know when you uh yeah when you try to spread both your time and attention onto a you know a larger canvas essentially you know i can <laughs> as an artist i can tell you it's a big difference even just going from a 5 by 7 note card to a 50 by 30 inch piece of paper you have to sort of think up on a whole new level of it's a whole other level of effort to to bring the same level of attention and um, care and love almost to something when you have to spread that out into a larger thing. So when you are working with a slower pace and a little bit more of a smaller scale um, approach, I think it's a lot easier to bring that careful design to the to the process. And in that process, you you get more interesting things. Another thing that I think is really the what is really a conundrum for me. I, think and this is also sort of tied into the creative thing is kind of the the messy vitality and the funky thing and which is an impossible thing to manufacture you can't really you can only get that with time essentially and with sort of the natural you know vagaries of what people do and there is also an aspect of that that has to do with personal freedom and letting people live their lives and do their do things that they want to do to their property and have agency and you know people recoil kind of at the idea i think a lot of people um recoil today at the 
some of the growth that we've been happen- having, um, uh, they they instinctively don't like the idea that you're sort of in a in a uh, in a shoebox or whatever that's a sort of a set repetitive pattern and and that you know giving people more agency over their habitation creates people who are more happier and and uh, more engaged and more have more ownership over their community. So. So, Chris, just building on that, will you speak to um, – I heard you just mention some values around growth for you, that, that scale is, is a corollary, corollary to pace, uh, the funkiness that I think a lot of people would um, credit the Carbondale community for having and that, and that freedom. Is there, is there common agreement around that? In, in our community beyond why or why not I don't think so I think it's it's a tricky it's just a tricky conundrum I think you, as you you know labeled it right off the bat um, because yeah to slow down and do it really right um, you often do sacrifice affordability because affordability kind of almost by definition has to be able to have a certain level of quickness and and simple yeah simplicity and um you know i don't yeah i'm not not on the right vocabulary necessarily but um yeah it can be kind of the opposite to some degree of the you know old school um kind of very carefully constructed mason (laughs) i don't know or just like the organic pace of seeing uh, like a a slower aspect of that right if you just look at carbondale and its pace of growth in the past and being much more measured and you can see that in in the built environment and i think i mean a good example would be well for me that one of the challenges is the scale of the issue around affordability like if you took a lumber yard that will be built in phases but I think it's 300 and some odd units, right? So let's say it's going to be built in three phases. That's still 100 and some odd units. So that's in like this direct um, juxtaposition to exactly what you're describing, Chris, which is this measured pace and maybe an ability to um, have this more unique environment for each individual to live in. You know, it's, it's a definite antithesis to trying to build affordable housing certainly at a pace that you know can keep up with the need um so that's kind of that like up valley example if you tried to transplant that to carbondale i mean i i don't know i think it i think the community would really struggle even with a hundred percent affordable housing project maybe not because maybe good growth ends up getting defined if you go to like okay but all of it's going to be 100 percent. i don't know Mm -hmm. you guys are gonna (laughs) town of carbondale is gonna have to wrestle with that right around a a project right here in town um Mm -hmm. but but that like that's what i see too especially when it comes back to affordability i mean to get to 700 units in carbondale right now if you said we just maintained this 20 percent inclusionary housing so meaning if i were to build you know, 100 units, 20 of those have to be affordable. 
how much free market housing has to be built to like catch right. up to 700 units. Mm-hmm. And that's a, you know, that's not only a pace, but probably just an overall scale that's, you know, not palatable. Yeah. How about, I think we're touching on something in yet another conflict. For me, um, when I've considered such issues in the past, the stumbling block, block to pace is what you said, Chris, freedom. Where that someone owns a piece of property, it's it's their right to either build something or ask permission to build something. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on am I am I fair in saying that that's a big conflict? And mm-hmm. and any thoughts on can we do anything about that, or is that just part of what we want in living in America? You want me to go? Or <laughs> um, well, I mean, all I was going to say is we there there there. It's for me. It's not just the challenge around like the. You know, I want the freedom of right of my private property. But again, it comes back to unintended consequences. So when we have seen growth management quota systems go into place that really try to control pace, um, the challenge is then it drives up market, right? So Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden the disparity between free market and anything affordable becomes even wider so Uh yeah part of it private property rights like let's go for it but the other part is if we did try to control it does it even get us the result that we wanted yeah and i think we run into obviously larger macro issues here um in terms of uh we we are at the we are, we do we live under the United States Constitution, which very much protects private property rights and honors and enshrines them essentially. And um, uh, despite what we would you know ho- hope, oftentimes even have a fair amount of consensus as a community about what we want. As a community, you can still have the one person who owns the property, and um, they want to do something else. Um, and I think what's become more challenging in the last maybe decade or so has been this thing where um you know uh in some ways i feel like the individual freedom thing has been eroded to some degree because it takes now a certain amount of resources to do anything that you almost need sort of a incorporation of people together to do anything um to bring the resources to bear um, and then at the same time, you have this whole thing at the Supreme Court of where corporations are now people or they get they get to be treated as as such, essentially under our laws. And um, when fundamentally they maybe not are not the same thing. And so um, I think that's a curious like distinction there where I think maybe merits more discussion or investigation is around, you know, how is it is there a moral case to be made for treating individual people different from you know entity corporate entities and or and how do you make that distinction how do you how do you not get caught up in a lot of um you know sort of the whole you know tax system is one example of people dodging and fainting their way around any kind of rule (laughs) um but uh I think in in Carbondale we've definitely there's we have a bogeyman of course so like the different corporate entities whether it's technology companies or speculators or hedge funds or whatever coming in and and doing things that um, there's no single person to hold to account about you know 
to take responsibility for for what is done or you know so or, or what she's saying there is when it comes to land use rights we'll use that term that maybe we should give different priority to shelter if it's someone's house as opposed to an organization's mission or and that might be profit or not um, is that what I'm hearing in that statement? I don't know. I think I'm just, I don't know if I, have, I don't think I have any answers really. Okay. I'm just sort of almost, yeah, sort of opening it up as a question myself of it. How do, is there a way to kind of think about that and, um, and try to protect the sort of personal freedom side of things while, because, you know, I think today we have such a, we have these like titanic forces of, you know, people are so against the government and they don't want the government to intrude in their lives, but the government has sort of necessarily had to grow big, I think out of need to compete almost with extremely large private enterprises that can bring such resources to bear. And I feel like being on the town council, I see an asymmetry of resources all the time of developers have a lot of consultants and people who can help them make a case and lawyers and things who can kind of bring a little bit of an edge of menace to your decision making um sometimes and and then the town staff is extremely stretched extremely thin and Mm -hmm. you know so it it's can be an asymmetry there um and that can be that can be challenging i think yeah you mentioned um you know the the cost challenges to growth, and I've always uh, I, I shouldn't say I've always thought that, but to me that's an that that is a market force that there are limits to growth, and you know just as when you build on land that's not suitable, you have to build a um, a more complex foundation. Uh, that's Mother Nature coming back and saying, eh, maybe you're not meant to build here or something to that effect. So let's kind of go down that path. And Heather, um, what are you seeing as the limitations to growth? Um, uh, you know, n- not only as a trustee, what you've seen and lived here in Carbondale, but you're seeing in other communities. Um, and are we, and have those limitations where are we on the bell curve? You know, have they just been increasing or are we at a, a turning point or a pivotal, a pivot point in history with those limitations? Hmm. I mean, if you went down the street and asked that question, you're going to get so many different answers, right? There's some people that just think climate collapse is like tomorrow. Right. right? And, and, um, there's others who have kind of a measured approach that, we're making progress and, and, and we can affect change. And, you know, and then there's folks that don't, don't think it's there and (laughs) do what you want. Um, I think that, uh, it's a tough one as a land use planner. Um, I see places where I have traveled, um, it was Salt Lake Valley, something like that. And I've only been traveling over there for 20 years, let's say. And I would drive into that valley and say, well, clearly it looks like there are zero limits to growth, (laughs) right? If there's a stitch of land to build out onto or a stitch of land to build up, um, you you can keep going, you know. And in some respects, resources are a supply and demand. Mm -hmm. So if someone says... Well, Carbondale can't grow because we have this much water. 
you know, it says, okay, if you do nothing to the demand side of that, you will obviously run out of supply. So some of the programs around, you know, from the federal government to the state and in trying to preserve, you know, X percentage of land, I think those are pretty huge because to me what it is starting to require of communities is how to think about changing the supply side both with their existing stock. Like for us, you know, fabulous to start thinking about our our building codes and, you know, requiring full electrification and being prepared for a grid. The harder challenge, what do you do with all of the existing homes that could make huge strides in their energy footprint, that could make huge strides in their water footprint? You know, how do we change our landscape where we're, you know, whether it's our food production, whether it's ornamental landscape, right, to kind of reduce all of the water use. Like, there's so far to go with supply. Um, So the bell curve is really hard because here's this, like, fixed aspect of what's already here. And making changes on that, suddenly you'd kick yourself back on the bell curve, you know. You'd make progress around like what already exists in the built environment. Um, but, but land is really important to me. I mean, being able to make sure that we are preserving the right wildlife corridors, right? And not all pieces of land are created equal. <laughs> so it is about prioritizing and making sure that, you know, we put a focus on um, preserving certain areas that need to be because those will never come back, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. eventually everything can come back. But, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know where we are on the bell curve, but that's a more complicated answer to that, I guess. Chris, I want to go to you in just a second, but I, remind, I want to remind listeners that you're listening to KDNK, Community Access Radio, and we're in the middle of the Meet in the Middle show, and my guests are Chris Hassig and Heather Henry. Chris, your thoughts on this idea of uh, limitations to growth, and where are we on that uh, on that curve, if you will? Well, I have to agree with a lot of what Heather is talking about. Obviously, water comes to the top of mind when you meet it. Start talking about growth. There was a pretty interesting article. I'm trying to remember if it was which newspaper was in about Paonia and their situation, um, and it was kind of it had a, a little bit of a curious tinge to it a little bit the the article because it was kind of couching the the uh the article as that the town needed to prove that it was making strides in opening up new water taps to people and i sort of had thought it was the other way around that developers had to demonstrate that they you know had the water or whatever to do what they wanted to do and i'm not sure there's obviously a very complicated history of around the town government stuff there um, but effectively, they have no growth there because they have no water taps, and that is kind of it right now. And I'd, I'm, you know, kind of curious to see how that's, how, what what is that? How's that distorting their their situation there? Um, we, yeah, I think we tend to believe that we are blessed compared to most almost any anybody in this entire river basin in terms of the amount of high country compared to agricultural land and, and urban land, um, that ratio is pretty beneficial to us and because we have more high country with, with hopefully snow and, <laughs> and the reservoir of site of, of that sort um, uh, to, to draw on. 
Um, but I think, and then the sci-fi thing, I think is also an interesting thing. That's a, that's a whole other, I think, dimension to this is, and it's another national kind of thing that think people are wrestling with is this like, can we design our way out of this? Can we, you know, is the, is, is civilization and it's, and it's the way it works fundamentally incompatible with, with being, with having an, uh, you know, a, a, no footprint you know it's kind of i don't think it's possible not to have a footprint but can it exist at a level that the regenerative state of the world can can keep pace with our you know with our growth um or do you need to retrograde back to a simpler society that doesn't demand as many services and things um and and i don't we don't have a lot of i mean we have experience i think we do have experience but they're pretty traumatic experiences of going in that direction and that's an interesting corollary to growth is decline and 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 more growth can often or or exceedingly high growth maybe can can create even harsher declines if you come back down to earth (laughs) um uh, there's a lot of a lot of thoughts in that but um yeah i don't know we're um I was just going to say, like, circling back to the whole good growth idea, um, you know, being able to house people in their primary home and provide shelter and find a way to incentivize that, I think, is good growth. You know, we have this concept now of RO housing, resident occupied housing, and I think to figure out ways to prioritize that, right, and in, 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 in because a challenge around unoccupied homes um, is is really tough. I mean, it's tough to see scarcity of people with basic needs like shelter, um, you know, and know not just in our community but, but all over. You know, I work over on the other side in Crested uh, Butte and Mount Crested Butte, and there was 75% they have a 25% occupancy rate of, in of homes Crested Butte and in Mount, Mount Crested Butte. Mount Crested Butte. So 75% of their homes go unoccupied. Like, it's gut-wrenching, right? And we know why. I mean, we know how it exists and things like that. But, you know, really f- figuring out how to incentivize. And for me, too, incentivize the things I was talking about because – the challenges, many of the actions we take, we don't recognize that it has the greatest impact on some of our most vulnerable people, mm-hmm. right? So if you forced people to retrofit their existing homes or something like that, mm-hmm. well, I might be able to do it, but my neighbor four doors down or across the street or across town, you know, they might go in financial ruin trying to, to make those retrofits. So. I think always like trying to balance things against, you know, who is going to be the most vulnerable and where does the government step in to try and financially help that incentive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's always a dilemma, too. I want no government unless they're going to give me money <laughs> to do things. <laughs> then yeah. I love government. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think that goes back to the again the macro scale issues that we are often find ourselves sort of born upon these currents of you know and I think it is a part part of this we have this very curious have had this curious role in this 
um, you know, income inequality thing that's been a sort of ongoing thing in the country probably since the 80s. Um, And my sense is that a lot of those, you know, tax cuts and stuff have been spent here. (laughs) You know, uh, this we are the trickle down economics actually is actually happening here. Um, And it but it's but it's distorting our community in a very odd way as well. And I think that's I think a lot of people get frustrated with growth because if you start looking at our actual numbers of people, we're not actually growing like in a crazy num- numbers of people but it seems like we're doing a lot of projects and there's certainly and i the statistic you know that would be really interesting would be to like how many bedrooms are there that are just empty in this community that are that are owned you know owned as second i don't know secondary mm-hmm. um and I'm sure you could house everybody in this community pretty easily if you had some sort of Stalinist <laughs> approach to how, you know, taking those ma- mansions on Red Mountain and you could put 30 people in one of those houses and, you know, there's your solution. But, you know, nobody's going to take nobody's going to take that lying down, you know, so. Well, I, I I might disagree that we could house everybody because I think that would just increase the demand and and uh because we live in a beautiful place it's utopia for a lot of people that um i'm not sure we would ever get there mm-hmm. um, that's despite, a very good point despite it being a valiant effort um i also like the idea of um heather i think you were talking about essentially growing our capacity to grow by becoming more efficient right as you know we could retrofit homes and stuff and this idea of well, the only I think in my decades of, of being involved in community building in the Roaring Fork Valley, how we've thought about affordable housing has been how do we create more housing? Uh, but I know both of you have been involved in talking about this idea of buy-downs, and to me that ties into this idea of growing our capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, we probably have extra bedrooms. We have people that aren't full-time residents. How do we take advantage of that? Um, Heather, since you're sitting on the on the um, regional housing coalition, do you mind speaking to that concept and tell our listeners what what's a buy down and how's it different than building affordable housing? Um, yeah, absolutely. So the regional housing coalition um, is really looking at launching three programs. So the first is a buy down, the second is a rental assistance, and the third is an ADU bedroom. Um, basically subsidy incentive program. So uh, the Regional Housing Coalition has said our stance is that we want to assist all of our communities with programs that are development neutral. So development and geographically neutral. So we're not going to get in the business of building housing. So what are all these programs we can take this existing stock, existing built environment, Um, and try to get people into those. So the buy-down program specifically um, is a little bit like it sounds. So if Chris is interested in a home and he can afford a $400,000 home, um, but the homes that he's looking at are $600,000, he can basically come to the Housing Coalition and get pre-approved for, call it a voucher, right so like a coupon so basically he can use that to go and as he puts the money down he gets to use 
$200,000 from the Regional Housing Coalition to essentially buy down that home to something that he can afford. Um, with that, what you're, uh, what you're then doing is placing a deed restriction on that home. And then the you know existing housing authorities hold that deed restriction. And there'd be details in that deed restriction depending on uh, qualifications and the cost of the home. And, but it fits within kind of the structure of our existing housing coalitions. So then if in five years Chris is leaving the valley or moves somewhere else, um, he can sell that home just like he would normally, but it'll have a deed restriction like some of the homes that we build under our affordable housing requirements. Uh, and so whoever comes to buy that home has to qualify, et cetera. Um, and, but you've now added this, this stock of deed restrictions. And that, by deed restriction, in this case, you mean like a price cap, so it can only appreciate X percent per year. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Exactly. So, it's a way to, um, you know, it's a way to not build ourselves out out of this because, again, there's kind of that that dilemma around: will you ever really build yourself out of it? Because the more you build, you know, potentially, the more need there becomes <laughs> in a way right so um now granted some of the challenges are pace right a buy down program um has a, a a fairly slow pace when you talk about the scale of the issue and mm-hmm. you can build a lumber yard for 300 units um you know we're trying to look at success might be defined as say six units per year in our launch year um and this program has been going on over in um, with the Eagle County Housing Authority, and I think they're at, you call it a 10-per-year pace, something like that. So hmm. it's a great program, um, but the scale, both, both of the cost per unit uh, and just the pace that this can occur at, at least to begin with, can be slower. I think it has huge potential. And when, frankly, you look at that kind of subsidy, that may seem like a lot, two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars $250,000, right? But, I mean, literally, at the construction costs that we're at right now, units are being subsidized significantly more than that, mm-hmm. right? right? If, if the um, city of Aspen or someone is building a unit, they're subsidizing half a million dollars right? mm-hmm. easily, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think that's a, a we're really excited, <laughs> frankly, to have that be one of our launch programs. Mm-hmm. Now that also just hits a sliver of the market. So that's where we're looking at rental assistance, um, ADU and bedroom incentives, et cetera, to hopefully have people think about, you know, can I build an ADU? Can I put a bedroom on? And maybe if I'm not in my home all that much, like I can get this bedroom rented out and there's an incentive for me to do that. Um, or even if I live there, I can build an ADU, put a deed restriction on it. It will always go into affordable housing. It won't go to short-term rental. It won't go to, you know, market rate at whatever it is. I think we're at 2000 a bedroom now or something like that. So, um, yeah, so we're pretty excited about those programs. That's kind of how a buy-down works. There's a lot of nuances, but that's the gist of it. All right. Well, that sounds like a pretty cool uh, program and definitely an alternative to, like you said, building our way out of this program, hence the title um, <laughs> of, of today's show. Um, 
it always amazes me how quickly the the show uh, the time flies. <laughs> but I do want to get back to this idea of carrying capacity because I feel like we've just sort of skirted that topic. Um, so, Chris, I want to throw it back to you and and is the pace because I would argue that the pace of growth in Carbondale was uncharacteristically slow since the the recession of 2008 Mm -hmm. and now that pace seems really fast although if you look at the last decade it seems reasonable or decade Mm -hmm. and a half Um, but is the pace too fast for um, essentially the community's carrying capacity and by community I also mean the the ecosystems around it and I I wanted to ask you about that Um, you mentioned water being really important, but mm-hmm. but are we growing too fast to to figure out sustainable solutions? I mean, I think I think if we yeah if we continued to just go at the pace we did for the last couple of years, if you just took that really narrow snapshot where it, sort of a lot of things came on at once, yes, that would be too much. But yeah, if you stretch out your time period, it becomes a little bit more palatable as a as conceptually. Um, I. Um, yeah, so I would say, I would say, yeah, if you, if you just took that snapshot of just what's happened, maybe even since the pandemic, Mm -hmm. um, that, that has seemed pretty fast. And, but again, those projects did a lot of that. Some of them came earlier in terms of the full process of them. It's a lot longer. Some of them had a lot longer process and some of them had shorter and they sort of happened to be converge upon this, upon these couple of years. So. Um, I guess I would say, yeah, if that was actually the pace we were going to do everything, um, but that's not going to practically happen either. I mean, I just think there's a, she talked about the, the land, you know, there's just a limited amount of land and there are a lot of, um, parcels of land that just are not, I don't think likely to be developed in the same kind of way. Um, going forward and I think we'll probably um, encounter a lot more resistance because if you are a planner or whatever it does make logical sense to say you've got the highway you've got the the roundabout does make sense as kind of a locus for for growth for growth if you were going to pick a spot mm-hmm. is better than maybe say the Cattle Creek um, turnoff or something like that um, sure but even with that uh, you know, four or five years ago, the town was in jeopardy of having to shut down its water plant due to a, a call. Um, it's tougher and tougher to even pull water, water out of the crystal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have protected lands around us. And uh, um, I, maybe I'll shift the question this way. Um, we talked about pace and freedom. Um, what do we do when those limits are telling us that we have to slow down what tools do we have in our tool ba- toolbox to to slow that growth um, maybe we'll circle back to you heather with the idea of a comp plan because um, i think that's another concept that um you know people have their rights to build um, but any thoughts on that heather or, or tools you've seen used in a comp plan to to really limit growth beyond what we've discussed already I mean, there's all kinds of tools you can use to limit growth. Um, you know, wh- whether it is an actual system to manage pace, uh, 
Um, and, and that can come, you know, either through saying we're just going to straight up limit square footage or taps, right, new taps, um, you know, so that you're kind of measuring it against, um, you know, how many units someone wants to add, right? Um, I think that there's land restrictions that you can use um, where you're really trying to secure that urban growth boundary, mm-hmm. and it is a fixed, immovable object, right? And you kind of have, you know, boulder with its green donut around it such that that land was secured in perpetuity in conservation easement. Um, so I think that's a way to, like, secure your borders. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, again, all of these have these, like, consequences. Um, I think ways to, again, think about, like, controlling growth in a way that says, what do we want to have? Like, do we want to encourage primary homes, and is that in rental or ownership? So, you know, you can create programs certainly out of your comprehensive plan. And and remember, comprehensive plan is only a policy document. So really, when a community wants to implement this, you, you've got to kind of move into, for us, it's our UDC, our Unified Development Code, and say, what are the things that we definitively want to make sure are happening? And some of those things have come to bear already electrification of buildings you know the amount of solar so like our construction we've kind of said this is what we want you know here's how we're either going to prescribe it or encourage it Mm -hmm. um so you you can use something like the udc to say you know hey we want it 100 percent like resident occupied resident occupied and Mm -hmm. you know carbon neutral or like whatever kind of some of those things I think end up being pace restrictors just because if they're not Mm -hmm. viable under like the existing construct that Chris was talking about financially or whatever um, you're not going to have any projects moving forward (laughs) so -hmm. so you'll end up controlling growth just like Mm -hmm. on the end around (laughs) kind of um, way uh, but but all of those things tend to control the pace of growth. Just with a few minutes left, Chris, I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. How about priorities? You know, the town's updated its comprehensive plan. So even though, as Hol- as Heather said, it's it's a policy gu- document, it's nonetheless guidance that's going to direct um, how regulations change. But what are your priorities in terms of affordable housing and growth moving forward as a trustee? Hmm. Um, well, I think clearly we want to have this lens of community, I think, and, um, trying to, trying to do, do things in ways that we are protecting. It's sort of, it's a hard thing to define maybe, but, it, but trying to protect that spirit of having a, a community that's a that's sort of a whole organism um together and you need primary residences you need you can't you know we've we, it is we do have the we have the case studies before us i feel like up in aspen and of kind of what happens when you hollow out 
a community and 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 everybody's in a subsidized housing who can who could who can't just otherwise afford to live there you know um so and i i think for me yeah i think there there is a question political it's a and comes down to politics and whether people how palatable what are people how far are we willing to go and i think I think whether we like it or not, the realities will come to us and we will have to face them, whether that's, you know, water shortages or wildfire things cutting us off from the rest of the world, things, you know, interfering with our technologies that we rely on. Um, and so at those points, maybe you create a new political reality where there's a different there's a different appetite for and maybe people are slowly moving in a direction where they're willing to uh, take you know accept the idea of sticks i mean i think we've we've worked on a very much of a carrot basis as much as possible and we as as gather said the the government i love the government when they give me money i don't want them to tell me what to do but um but there are plenty of tools in a toolbox if you want to start getting into sticks and um and and using um different there, I mean, we've we've started brainstorming about like what kind of if there if you were going to try to do a tax, how would you of some kind? How would you design a tax that attacks the problem as directly as possible and doesn't isn't regressive or something like that, um, and actually could generate some income because the big you know big problem with the buy down is yeah we can only afford to do four or five of these maybe if we at this rate because we don't you know we can't. We don't have the financial resources necessarily. So tr- for me, a big priority is just yeah, trying to get our – at least have our toolbox maybe a little bit more. Explore what are the tools and and maybe start – you know, as and then as the devil is in the details, once you start digging into it, you sort of figure out, well, this doesn't work for this reason or this needs to get modified in this way because it's just not administratively possible or has some other um, – problem with it but i think as long as we kind of keep that focus on like really trying to like hold the community together and and have that it's like a very undefinable thing but it's such a powerful thing in carbondale i think of people feeling like at home and ownership of the community and involvement and it makes it makes the town council very contentious occasionally but um uh because people care so much that's a good thing (laughs) Well, what I'm taking away from this show is this concept of pace. And while you mentioned scale as well, Chris, I mean, it sounds like there's agreement that pace is really, that's where we need to keep the eye on the ball. And Heather, I'm paraphrasing you, but you said something to the degree with the degree of with pace comes resiliency. And I think that's what I was trying to, that's where this discussion for me really resonated was how do we build the resiliency while still putting a roof over folks' heads, particularly those who don't have one otherwise. Um, and I think that's the, that's the challenge. I think that's where local government comes in to, to set that pace, whatever it is, and to, to, to put the carrots or the sticks in place um, to really allow that um, pace to be uh, acceptable um, and not too much, as a lot of community members have said. Um, I really appreciate you both participating in the show. I think this, as as the complexity of the of the answers uh, show, it's it's just hard, and we don't have a lot of solutions. But I'm encouraged with the solutions that the housing coalitions are coming up with and introducing uh, to our valley. So thank you. 
Yeah, I want to thank Heather for staying on it past her will being willing to be our liaison to the to the housing coalition and being Carbondale's voice in that process and helping us brainstorm new ideas and make this try to solve come up with some solutions as best we can yeah thanks no it's my pleasure we'll, we'll only solve this regionally and that's a, a big aspect of the coalition we have to do this together approached by a russian prince with a all right. Uh, thank you, Heather. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Dan. And uh, we'll send it over to Katie and Kay at NPR News. Thank you all. Thanks.